For eight years, William Valiant, a one-armed carpenter and fossil enthusiast, had been looking for the find of a lifetime. He and his brother would spend their days off in the countryside near their home of Rome, New York, looking for a particular fossil. It started from a chance find, when William found an odd fossil at Six Mile Creek. It was a golden leg of a trilobite, an ancient sea creature that looked like a squashed centipede. Up until then, no one knew what a trilobite's leg looked like. And this leg was amazingly preserved, unlike anything that William had ever seen before. And he was enamored by its design. And so he knew, if he could find the rest of the fossil, he might be able to find a complete trilobite fossil. Because up until then, no one knew exactly what a trilobite looked like. In fact, there was actually some debate whether or not trilobites had antennae. So he thought, if he could find this perfect trilobite fossil, he would be making history. And so, for eight years, he and his brother would search for these fossils. And again, and again, nothing. Finally, he found the fossils. They were buried deep along a hillside and nestled within a layer of shale just four centimeters thick that was practically indistinguishable from the meters of rock that surrounded it. Yet within these four centimeters of rock were some of the most amazing fossils found at that time. These trilobites were golden, as if touched by Midas himself. They were preserved in stunning detail, with their many legs in neat rows, and their original three-dimensional body only slightly squashed by the layers of rock above it. And there, in miraculous detail, were the thin antennae, arching like a whip. He had finally found his white whale, or in this case, his golden trilobite. Few other trilobite fossils can match the level of stunning quality and detail of these golden trilobites. But how did this happen? Why are these trilobites preserved so perfectly? And why are they golden? In this episode of Fossil Bonanza, we will answer these pertinent questions and dive into the wonderful Lagerstadt of Beecher's trilobite bed. Let's find out. Hello and welcome back to Fossil Bonanza. My name is Andy Connolly and this is a podcast focused on unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. In our first episode, we talked about the history of paleontology, how it can be very hard for a critter to become a fossil, and the different types of a fossil Lagerstätten. Now this is our second episode, and the first to focus on a particular fossil site. And for our first episode, I wanted to focus on something that was small, but impressive, and I thought Beecher's trilobite bed fit the bill. Now, if you were to step back to upstate New York about 445 million years ago, you would not be strolling through a cool temperate forest, but swimming in a subtropical sea. It is a late Ordovician period, and the world is very different from today. Dinosaurs, reptiles, mammals, or amphibians haven't evolved yet, and really life on land is just restricted to 
a few small colonizers of bugs and moths. But the sea in New York? That's where life is at. It hosts a weird and wonderful collection of creatures who thrive in this world, one of which are the trilobites, a very successful and ancient group of bug-like animals who could be found in every sea across the world. And on one fateful day, these trilobites and their ecological partners would be preserved in a freak accident that would make them one of the best fossil sites in North America. So Beecher's trilobite bed is found within the Frankfurt Shale of the Utica Formation. And it is what we call a Konzerfot Lagerstatten. Uh, for those of you who didn't see the first episode, a Lagerstatt is a fossil site that has either a very high quality of fossils or the fossils are abundance. There's a large amount of them. Uh, in this case, uh, Beecher's trilobite bed is what we call a Konzerfot Lagerstatten, meaning that these fossils here, there's not a lot of them, but they are amazingly well-preserved. These fossils are actually preserved in something called pyrite, which many of you probably know as fool's gold. And this pyrite is what actually gives the luxurious sheen compared to a lot of the more earthy-colored fossils you may see in museums. And what I really like about these fossils is that they, it gives them a nice, very sharp image, which contrast them against the surrounding shale, which is very dark, almost a black color. So I mentioned that this is called Beecher's trilobite bed, and you may be thinking that Beecher was the scientist who discovered these fossils. Not so much. Um, actually, so Charles Beecher was instrumental in the site's history, he just wasn't the first to discover it. As you can imagine, the person who discovered it was William Valiant, the person at the intro of this episode. Like a lot of fi famous fossil finds, Beecher's trilobite bed was found by pretty much luck, persistence, and by an amateur. Uh, for William Valiant, he basically, what happened to him, he found a chip of shale with the trilobite leg on it, and when he saw that, he basically recognized its importance. We'll get into this later, but trilobite legs are very rarely preserved in the rocks, uh, even rarer than fossilized antennae. What's really interesting is that before Beecher's trilobite bed was found, paleontologists hypothesized that trilobites had antennae, but at this time there was really no strong proof for that. And so when Valiant found these legs, he realized that there's probably a rest of the fossil with it, and with this fossil there may even be antennae. And so, after eight years of finding, he found the bed in 1892 with the whole collection. I want to stress that, like, finding these golden critters was like hitting the paleontological jackpot. And he was really excited. William was ecstatic. And what he did was he basically, he wrote to a lot of nearby paleontologists and sent them samples of his amazing find. So one of these professors that he wrote to was the famous Professor Marsh at Yale. Uh, many of you may actually uh, recognize that name. Uh, he and his rival, uh, Professor Cope, were instrumental in the dinosaur wars, which happened in the late 1800s. Uh, so he was still alive at this time period. He was still kicking. And so when he wrote to Marsh, Marsh recognized the importance of this, and he actually referred this information to a man that he thought would take a great interest in them, because... Marsh's specialty is more in vertebrate paleontology, animals with a backbone, so he figured he uh, would give it to someone who had a specialty in invertebrates, animals without a backbone. And that person was a young colleague named Charles Beecher. 
Beecher is very important, actually, because he was actually Yale's first invertebrate paleontologist, and he became the curator in, of geology in 1891. And so when Beecher found out about these fossils, he, he basically wasted no time. He, he, took a, he actually took a lease on this land, and he started excavating the fossils as soon as he took the lease out. And this was only two years after William Valiant found these fossils. And so when Beecher himself found these fossils, he wrote back to Marsh saying, I feel quite well satisfied now with the results of this trip and think we can nearly control the antennae business. I look forward with pleasure to working up the collection. I just kind of find it funny that he says antennae business. You may think I was kind of kidding on the antennae, but the antennae are really important. Like all the paleontologists that were finding out about this were just, this is the site. This is the site to learn all about trilobites. Uh, it's pretty, it's, I, I love paleontologists and how enthusiastic they can get on stuff that may seem trivial to other people. And so when Beecher, he found these uh, trilobites, he basically just started preparing them out of the rock. And the problem is, is that these trilobites, they're actually, um, the shale that they're in is kind of weak. And so if you're, if, if you're not careful, you could easily destroy the fossil itself when you're trying to remove it. Even more importantly, even more stressful is the fact that once you get it out of the rock, there's still that tricky matter of trying to uncover all those little dirts and specks that's still covering the fossil itself. It's not like as easy as taking a brush and just brushing over the dirt and calling it good there. A lot of the rock is still basically fused to the, or at least kind of lightly cemented to the fossil. So he tried out dental tools, which worked well, but didn't really work too well on the delicate legs. And what he actually stumbled on was using a eraser, like a soft eraser, where he could just very gently rub away the shale without damaging the fossil. And he was so meticulous, he was so patient on this, that he could even clean out the spaces in between the trilobite legs, which I think is pretty astounding. Uh, he was so good at it that um, William Dahl, who worked at the Smithsonian at the time, said, Aided by his remarkable manual dexterity, mechanical skill, and untiring patience, he worked out the structure of antennae legs and other ventral appendages with a minuteness which had previously been impossible. And so because of Beecher's meticulous preparation, uh, his research and the publications on these, this is the reason why the quarry is named after him, Beecher's trilobite bed. Other paleontologists have come before and after, but he was the one that basically did most of the heavy lifting for it. He gave detailed analysis of the trilobite's anatomy. He described their larval stages. In fact, before he even published photographs as proof, some scientists regarded his drawings as so outlandish that they were unreliable. These fossils were that game-breaking. Unfortunately, before Beecher could publish any more papers on the trilobites' anatomy and their family relationships, he passed away at just 47 years old. Thankfully, his student, Percy Raymond, completed the rest of his unfinished work in 1920 when he became a professor at Harvard University. You can actually read Beecher's papers today thanks to the public domain. If you go to Google Scholar and type in his name in trilobites, you'll be able to read some of his papers 
and be able to view the wonderful drawings that many were thought were impossible. So Beecher believed that his quarry and another quarry located upstream was completely excavated. No more fossils. But attempts have been made afterwards to try to find it. But this was really difficult because they didn't actually, the, the excavators didn't really take detailed notes of the exact location of this spot. And so a lot of people assumed that this site was basically lost forever. But in the 1980s, uh, the bed was actually rediscovered by two fossil collectors who basically studied and analyzed Beecher's old photographs. And after a lot of comparison with the landscape and with the area, they were actually able to find it. And this kind of added, like, act as a resurgent to the area where new information of these phyllobites could come into light, where new studies and analyses can be done to perform on these beds. Unfortunately, the bed itself is not really available to the public. It's, for one thing, it's pretty, um, it's not a really accessible place. And it's not very easy to find the fossils because they are kind of pretty much buried underneath a lot of rock. But thankfully, the American Museum of Natural History and the Yale Peabody Museum continue to excavate these fossils to this day. So it may not come as a great shock to you all that most of the fossils found at Beecher's trilobite bed are trilobites. And there are a few other animals, but they are the main ones. Which leads me to a good question. What are trilobites exactly? Trilobites are probably the most iconic fossil in the world, just behind the ammonites, which are the spiral-shaped fossil. It's very likely you've seen them before, and if you have a fossil collection, it's incredibly likely you have one uh, with you. Uh, trilobites, they, they kind of look like a pill bug, uh, but a bit wider, and they have a more prominent head, and they're generally larger. The name trilobite means three lobe, which references their general body plan. Uh, they have what's called an axial lobe, which runs from their head to tail, and then it's flanked by two pleural lobes, which make up the sides. And despite the great difference in size and shape among the trilobites, they all have these three lobes. Trilobites are in the arthropod group of animals, which contain critters like insects, spiders, crabs, and basically anything that has a hard exoskeleton and jointed legs. A lot of people compare trilobites to modern horseshoe crabs, which I'm a bit uneasy at. Uh, true, horseshoe crabs are marine, and they are arthropods, but they're not descendants of them. They're actually as closely related to trilobites as spiders are to them. Uh, basically, in fact, like uh, trilobites are actually their own group of arthropods. You have five broad groups of arthropods. The crustaceans, which basically include the lobsters and crabs. Uh, the myriapods, which make up the centipedes and millipedes. The chelicerates, which makes up spiders, scorpions, and horseshoe crabs. And then finally, of course, the insects. And then last, you have the trilobites. There is an estimate I've read that over 20,000 species have been named of trilobites, which is very frankly incredible. Uh, by comparison, there are just over 5,000 species of modern mammals, so these guys were really successful. 
So the thing is, though, you, you may have noticed that of the five arthropod groups, only trilobites aren't alive today because they unfortunately are extinct. They evolved very early, about 521 million years ago. They rapidly flourished, they became successful, and then slowly died off and then became completely extinct uh, at the Permian extinction, which wiped them out completely 252 million years ago. So they lived about 270 million years, which is a fantastic achievement. Uh, for reference, dinosaurs only lived about 165 million years, so these guys have got it made. So trilobites were very, are a very common fossil. So why are we making this a big deal at Beecher's trilobite bed? This is where the story gets interesting, in my opinion. Because one of the reasons why arthropods are the most dominant life form in the planets are their exoskeleton. The exoskeleton is made of something called chitin, which is really tough and very resilient. And in trilobites, crabs, and lobsters, the shells are further reinforced by this hard mineral, this calcium carbonate. And for arthropods in general, the exoskeleton is the main source of their strength and speed. And because of which, they're able to exploit environments and fill in roles and niches that may otherwise be left open. But there is a drawback, and that drawback is rigidity. Unlike our bones or a shell of a tortoise, the arthropod's exoskeleton doesn't grow with the animal as it ages. Every time it gets too big for it, they have to shed their exoskeleton, crawl out of it like some sort of freaky body bag, and allow their new exoskeleton to expand and harden. Uh, this process is called ecdysis, and the discarded old, old exoskeleton is called exuviae. A uh, well-known example of this are cicadas, who basically crawl out of the ground like cute little zombies. They shed their old skin, unfurl their wings, and begin their wonderful life above ground. You see their exuviate everywhere, especially during their 17-year cycle, which is very fantastic. Trilobites go through ecdysis as well. In fact, they are likely to shed their skin several times a year. Now, this is the mind-blowing part. A single trilobite can leave multiple fossils of itself. How does that work? When the trilobite sheds its skin, that exoskeleton is still made of that hard chitin and rigid material. So when that material falls to the bottom of the ocean, it will get buried over time and will slowly fossilize. And since trilobites are very common, and they shed their exoskeletons multiple times a year, as such, we see a rather common occurrence of trilobite fossils. It's likely that the trilobite fossils you've seen are just their exuviae, and that's it. Because of which, it's honestly quite rare to find the actual trilobite body. Now, remember when I said before that trilobites use calcium carbonate to reinforce their shells? So this what helps gives them their strength and durability and what helps them fossilize. However, a trilobite's legs and antennae do not have that mineral. That means that they are much softer and are more likely to rot away before they are preserved. It's very much like a bird's feather or a mammal's hair. If you find a trilobite's antennae, you found something good. So, this is where it all falls into place. Why our amateur fossil collector, William, was so keen in finding these trilobite fossils. When he stumbled upon that chip of a fossilized trilobite leg, he knew how valuable it was and why he had to find the rest of it. 
and why I had to spend eight years looking for it. Do not just find their exuviae, but the whole package. That is the significance of Petra's trilobite bed. Not because that it's golden or preserved in pyrite, that's pretty cool, but because they're storing the memory of the trilobite body itself, we know exactly what trilobites look like thanks to those four centimeters of rock. This is why Beecher's trilobite bed is a Konservat Lagerstatten. So let's now turn into the actual preservation itself. Why are we seeing these trilobites preserved so perfectly? In this case, I want to introduce a term called permineralization. Now, organisms can fossilize in different ways, and this is one of them. For permineralization, this occurs when the pores inside an animal's cells are filled with mineralized water. Uh, this water can come from oceans, lakes, rain, doesn't matter. As the water evaporates or moves out of the pores, it leaves behind minerals that were dissolved in the water. The minerals will crystallize and reconstruct the tissue shape of the organism and can even preserve the original organic material in some cases. Petrified wood and bone commonly go through permineralization to become a fossil. As we progress in fossil bonanza, we will see permineralization again and again in how affected are Lagerstaaten. So, permineralization can use different minerals to help it protect the organism. Silica is the most common one, and can frequently be seen in petrified wood. For Beecher's trilobite bed, the presence of sulfur changes the trilobite into pyrite, which is called pyritization. So, pyrite, again, fool's gold, has a very simple chemical formula, iron disulfide, and it's a very common earth mineral, especially in the marine sediment. And... This is why when you go to like gem and mineral shows, you can see these beautiful cubic pyrite shapes and not very expensive either, which is pretty awesome. And because of that chemical formula, you get these beautiful cubes of them. And it's just, to me, it's just amazing. And I always love teaching with pyrite, especially to children where they have to try to guess what the mineral is. And a lot of time they jump on through the gold and but then every now and then you have a kid that guesses it's pyrite, which is pretty great. That's the big difference, too. One of the big differences is that pyrite is, uh, has that cubic shape. Gold, not as much. A little bit more of an amorphous shape. Anyway, so the reason why pyrites are common uh, has to do with a humble organism, the very intense-sounding name, anaerobic sulfate-reducing bacteria. That's a lot to unpack here. So let's break that down. So first, bacteria are, you know, single-celled microorganisms. And they can live in all sorts of crazy environments, like the hot springs of Yellowstone. And a lot of bacteria actually don't need oxygen to survive. These bacteria are called anaerobic, while those who do need oxygen are called aerobic. Aerobic organisms use oxygen to breathe, while anaerobic organisms use other molecules instead. Uh, so what's wild about this is anaerobic bacteria can sometimes find oxygen toxic and can even die from oxygen poisoning. In this case, the anaerobic sulfate-reducing bacteria is using what's called sulfate, which is made of one sulfur and four oxygen atoms, to help it breathe. And as it's breathing, it's producing hydrogen sulfide. You actually may experience this in real life as the source of rotten egg smell or that 
awful smell from salt marshes. This hydrogen sulfide is important to us as when it reacts to things in the soil like iron, it forms pyrite. I'm kind of like glancing over a lot of complicated steps here, but this is kind of like a simplified look at it. So even though these organisms can be abundant, and even though pyrite can be abundant from their byproduct, turning the process of an animal into pyrite is actually pretty rare. So it can only happen in specific circumstances. So what happened here in Beecher's bed? Let's actually go back to the Ordovician period and dive back into that New York ocean. We're going to go right into the ocean floor. Before the trilobites came, the sulfate-reducing bacteria were living in an ocean floor with a severe lack of organic food. We know this because many of the surrounding rock layers had a plethora of fossilized burying organisms, but that four centimeters layer of rock had nothing. It was an underwater desert. This was a time when the bacteria were starving. But what the layer did have was iron, and lots of it. All this iron and all these starving bacteria were primed to make our Lagerstadt happen. It just needed one more key ingredient. That key ingredient came in a flash. Based on the fossils and the sediment patterns, we can infer that the trilobites were dumped into their current position from somewhere upshore by a turbidity current. A turbidity current is basically, to put it simply, an underwater avalanche. And so we know that this turbidity current happened for several reasons. The first of which is that the trilobites are arranged roughly parallel to each other. This indicates that they were buried from a strong unidirectional moving current. This also means that the trilobites were already dead by the time they got buried because otherwise they would have attempted to escape and thus disrupt their alignment. Furthermore, the sediment patterns in Beecher's trilobite bed match modern turbidity currents, which is quite a smoking gun. You can see evidence of this in the rock layers, as it starts with a heavily eroded base, followed by a gradual decrease of sediment size upward due to a weakening current. So as such, we can reconstruct the scene of what happened. First, a turbidity current was triggered by some unknown force, and it basically swept across the ocean floor. And as the sand and debris was thundering down the ocean floor, it picked up these trilobites and buried them further downwards. The shock, the deeper water's cold temperatures, killed the trilobites quickly and kept them in place. Now buried, the trilobites were protected from any scavengers who may tear apart their sopped limbs. The influx of this fresh meat triggered the sulfate-reducing bacteria, who immediately went to town on the trilobite shells, antennae, and legs. The bacteria produced hydrogen sulfide, which was then trapped by the overlying sediment. The water, rich with iron, seeped in through the trilobite's pores and reacted with the hydrogen sulfide. Pyrite precipitated out of the water and replaced the trilobite's original body, reconstructing it with a golden mineral. Since the sediment was still loose and not compacted, the trilobite body's original three-dimensional form was replaced by the pyrite, recreating even their soft tissues and structures. In a matter of months, the reaction ceased, and the trilobites laid undisturbed for over 400 million years, waiting patiently to be rediscovered by William Valiant.
Now that we understand how our trilobites got preserved, let's focus on the animals themselves. What have we found in these rock layers, and what can we infer from these fossils? Although trilobites dominate the fossil assemblage, both in abundance and in notoriety, we see other animals that are typical of the Ordovician period. These mainly include the clam-like brachiopods and the colony-oriented graptolites. As these animals make up just a small percentage of the fossils and aren't particularly special, we'll put them aside for now. Uh, maybe in a future episode I'll talk more about them and their global commonality, but for now, they'll just be a footnote to us. Even among our trilobites, there is one species that dominates the rest, called Triarthrus. It's so abundant, it makes up about 85% of the fauna recovered from the bed. Growing up to 4 centimeters long, Triarthrus is probably one of the most recognizable species of trilobites in the world thanks to Beecher's trilobite bed. The original drawings of Triarthrus by Beecher were quickly favored in paleontology textbooks and research papers and were recreated again and again. The clean visuals, the many spindly legs, and the long and flowing antennae were easy on the eyes and on the mind. If you ever see a recreation of a trilobite, it's a good chance it's a triarthrus. The plethora of triarthrus that makes up our death assemblage means we can gleam some juicy information that may otherwise be lost with just one individual. Uh, for instance, the amazingly preserved legs and gills gives us an idea how triarthrus moved and fed along the ocean floor. We also have an idea of their overall shape, given their three-dimensional burial with a minimum squashing. However, one of the more incredible things about these fossils are their preserved guts. Since the pyrite recreated the original structure of the trilobite's internal organs, we can peek inside them using x-rays and see what they look like. It's preserved so well that we can determine a trilobite's gut is very similar to a crab or spider's gut. Isn't that wild? These detailed anatomical recreations of triarthrus are quite useful in reconstructing the overall arthropodal family tree. Thanks to these remarkable trilobites, along with other fossilized evidence, paleontologists infer that trilobites' closest living relatives, paleontologists infer that trilobites' closest living relatives are the crustaceans and the trilicerates, who again include the horseshoe crab, spiders, and scorpions. The abundance of triarthrus fossils also means we can think about their life cycle. Adult triarthrus are very common in Beecher's trilobite bed, but what's notably absent are the juveniles. Although you can find fossils of juvenile exuviae, just like any other trilobite fossil, their actual bodies are completely absent. This is also interesting given that only a small percentage of trilobites reach adulthood. So why is Beecher's trilobite bed so adult-heavy? Well, Based on Beecher's trilobite bed and other triarthrus fossils found elsewhere, we have a pretty good idea what their life cycle is like. After hatching from eggs less than a millimeter long, the baby trilobites would float in the water for a month or so as a suspension feeder. As they grow older and shed their exoskeletons, they gradually transition to a seabed-only lifestyle where they scavenge on carcasses and on any small critters they dug up. Based on their exuviae, it's likely they lived to about four years of age and probably had an annual breeding season just like modern crustaceans. Given this context, 
it makes sense why the adults were preserved and not the juveniles. When the turbidity current came, it only affected the adults and not the kids. As they were having a good time up in the water column, relaxing and taking it easy. Meanwhile, the adults were swept away by the underwater avalanche and died simply for being too old. This also explains why there's a notable absence of other sea dwellers as they were above the disaster zone. It's very cool. There are a few other trilobite species found here, but they are quite rare. One of the more interesting species is Cryptolithus, which, unlike Pyarthrus, lacked eyes. They had these little sensory pits instead, which helped them observe the low-light world of the ocean floor. We also find mainly baby specimens of Stenobulferum, and it's likely they spent their time on the seafloor before moving up to the water column. Basically, the complete opposite life cycle of a Triarthrus. But like I said, both of these species are quite rare, and really a more accurate name for Beecher's trilobite bed should be Beecher's Triarthrus bed. Mm, probably best to stick to the original. It's definitely a lot more brand friendly. So, as we close our first Loggerstadt-themed episode, I want to reflect on the importance of Beecher's Trilobite Bed. I think Beecher's Trilobite Bed is a great example of a conservat Loggerstadt because of those amazing trilobites. The legs are preserved, the antennae are preserved, and even their guts are preserved. We can even recreate their life cycle, their feeding habits, and their just general way of life from these precious fossils. And because of these trilobites, we can understand how they fit into the overall tree of life, how they relate to modern animals, and on the flip side, how we can use modern animals to infer about their lifestyle. And to this day, we see Beecher's drawings of trilobites as they fill our minds and textbooks of these once bygone creatures. It's all very remarkable and poetic. As we progress in this series, I have a feeling that we'll be seeing the influence of fossil Lagerstaaten, whether subtle or not, again and again. The gaps in our Earth's history are so wide and thin that any remarkable fossil will give us a peek into a world that is otherwise lost. Their fossils fill museum displays. They're painted into our murals. And so many of these ancient, iconic animals make their way into TV, movies, documentaries, and books. When I teach my students rocks and minerals, I sometimes get asked the question, how much money the pyrite is worth? In my response, it's not the financial value that makes it important, it's what we can learn from the object. And though the trilobite's pyritic makeup does make them amazing to behold, what we can learn from them, I would argue, makes them many more times special. William Valiant knew this as well. It's why he spent eight years of his life looking for these golden trilobites, because of their incredible value and worth to the natural scientific community. If you like this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast. I just started. I released episode two and one on the same day. So if you haven't listened to episode one, definitely go check it out. Next time, we are heading to Germany 
to the Jurassic period and dive into its marine seas. We're going to see ichthyosaurs, marine crocodiles, and crinoids floating on huge logs. It's pretty incredible. If you would like to learn more about Beecher's trilobite bed, I'm going to actually provide some links to the papers on my website, again, Fossil Bonanza, so you can find some of the new research that's taking place for these trilobites, as well as Beecher's original drawings and publications on this subject matter. It's pretty amazing. I would also recommend you check out the book Fossil Ecosystems of North America by Nuds and Selden. It covers that site, which was pretty helpful to this research, as well as other incredible fossil sites. Also check out Richard Conniff's House of Lost Worlds. That also gave me some great insight into the trilobite bed. I've also included a rough transcript of this episode on my website. So if you know anyone that may benefit from a transcript, make sure that they check out my website and then that way they can be able to enjoy this episode just like you have enjoyed listening to me. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this and I hope to see you again next time.